If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145, where we are going to be looking at the goodness of God this morning. One of the things you need to understand about the goodness of God is the goodness of God is a general term that describes many other attributes of God. For instance, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, the long-suffering of God, the kindness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the jealousy of God. All those what we call moral attributes of God are all categorized under goodness. And the difficulty this morning was to try and preach on the goodness of God without deviating into those other areas of the goodness of God, those subcategories of the goodness of God, which we are going to deal with later in quite a bit more detail. And so I tried to navigate through the scriptures and kind of stay very focused on the goodness of God. And so as we're going through this morning, if you're wondering, well, how come he doesn't talk about grace or how come he doesn't talk about mercy? We will. We will. Don't you worry. We are getting there. But this morning, we want to just look at the overarching category of God's goodness. Has there ever been a time in your life when maybe, uh, you know, you prayed really hard for something? Maybe you wanted to see somebody saved and come to the Lord, and you prayed and prayed maybe for years. And then finally, God answers your prayer, and you just say, isn't God good? Or maybe... You weren't even praying for something. Maybe just all of a sudden out of the blue you've just got a big job you know, promotion or, or something happened where you received this incredible blessing and, and out of your mouth just came, God is so good. Or maybe there are just circumstances in your life that are just piling up and you just see God doing so many things. It's just hard to count them and it just makes you want to say, God is so good. Well, it's good to praise God for his goodness. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in this psalm that that's exactly what we need to do. But it's not good to think that God is only good when you get things you like. Because God is good the rest of the time also. It's bad if you have a mercenary praise of God. In other words, if God gives you things, then you will praise him for his goodness. That's what Satan accused Job of. He told Job, well, the only reason that he worships you is you have given him these good things. Remove those and he will curse you to his face. Then later on he says, oh, the only reason he has praised you is because you have given him health, but take away his wealth and he will curse you to his face. Of course... Satan was wrong. But what about in your life? We need to remember that when we are suffering, God is good. When we are sick, God is good. When loved ones die, He is good. When an unbeliever suffers in hell for eternity, God is good. God is always good and there is no time when he is not good. He is always as good as he ever was and ever will be. A.W. Tozer has written this about the goodness of God. Divine goodness as one of God's attributes is a self-caused, infinite, perfect, and eternal. Since God is immutable, which means he doesn't change, he never varies in the intensity of his loving kindness. He has never been kinder than he now is, nor will he ever be less kind. He is no respecter of persons, but makes his sun to shine on the evil as well as the good, and sins reign on the just and the unjust. The cause of goodness is in himself. The recipients of his goodness are all his beneficiaries without merit and without recompense. End quote. In other words, we don't even deserve it. He just gives it. He just gives it. I used to be a fly fisherman. I used to fish all the time. I, I conservatively, I would say I would fish four times a week. And you're thinking, how does that work? Well, if you live in a town that has a river running through the center of it, and many ponds and lakes within you know, 20 minutes or half hour drive, and a lot of times just after work, I just go down there and just fish for an hour or two, just to kind of get a fix. And then I got married, and I had to cut that back. 
to about half of what it used to be. And then I started going to seminary and I only was able to fish once in a great while. And then after I got out of seminary and I had kids and a ministry and everything, I fished less and less until now I can say with a clear conscience, I do not fish anymore. (laughs) But when I did fish, I would build all my own fly rods and tie all my own flies. And and on on my rod, on my favorite rod, my only begotten rod... um, I, I wrote in white lettering right above the grip where I could see it every time I cast James 1.17. All good gifts come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And as I would be at Silver Creek casting or the South Fork of the Boise River or floating through some canyon like Hell's Canyon, I'd be casting, I'd see every cast, all good gifts, all good gifts. But you know what? Even though I don't fish anymore, God is still good. He is just as good as he ever was and ever will be. His goodness is not predicated on me getting what I want. As a matter of fact, I like preaching and teaching more than fly fishing. There is never a day when I think, oh, I have to go to the office again. I have to force myself to stay home. God is so good to me. Better than I would be to me. And this morning I want to show you some of what Psalm 145 teaches us about the goodness of God. I want to show you some of the scriptures that speak of the goodness of God. And I want to summarize some of the applications of the goodness of God. So follow along as I read Psalm 145. You can follow along, and as I read this, you're following along, look for the goodness of God. It's everywhere in the psalm. The psalmist says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great and loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power and to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. What a great psalm. What a great psalm with great truth and great examples of God's goodness. Now, while there are many things in the psalm that speak of the goodness of God, almost everything, we are only going to look at those verses that specifically address and mention God's goodness. The first verse is verse 7. If you look there, you will see the text says, They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The second explicit reference of God's goodness is in verse 9. Look there. The text says, The Lord is good to all... And his mercies are over all his works. Now the word translated good or goodness in verse 7 and 9, verses 7 and 9, is basically the same root Hebrew word. It's the word tov. It just speaks of what is good. And in the scriptures it's used of all sorts of good. For instance, the Bible speaks of moral good. Good as opposed to evil. 
The scriptures also speak of a, of a good quantity of something, an abundance of something, a good number of things. The scriptures also speak of visual good or beauty, something that looks good on the outside. I, you know, Samson, when he was in his womanizing days, you know, saw the Philistine woman. You remember what he said to his parents? Get her for me. She looks good to me. And there is also feelings and emotions in the Bible that are described as good. So there's lots of ways that good is used. We use good to describe lots of things too. But when it comes to God, good is in a whole different category. God is not partially good. He doesn't have good added to him. He himself is good. It's part of his essence. And remember, we said for something to be an attribute of God, it must be something that God has to be or he wouldn't be God. Well, God, the scriptures tell us, is good in essence, in being. Puritan Thomas Manton, speaking of God's goodness, said this, quote, God is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is, for all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, and not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a superadded quality. In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good, and the creature's good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is, and there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him." End quote. That's great. That's a good picture. If there is anything in the world that is good, anything in the universe that is good, that God says is good, that thing is good because God made it good. Everything in the universe is but an example of just a drop from the ocean of God's goodness. That's what Manton is telling us. So we must realize that if anything is good, it is good because it draws its goodness from God. Just as leeches, you know, latch onto their hosts and they suck the blood of their hosts in order to stay alive, all creation draws from the goodness of God to stay alive and exist. And nothing exists, nothing lives apart from the goodness of God. Stephen Charnock in his work, The Existence and Attributes of God, defines the goodness of God with these words, pure and perfect goodness is the only is only the royal prerogative of God. Goodness is a choice, perfection of divine nature. This is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness, good in himself, good in his essence, good in his highest degree, possessing whatsoever is comely, excellent, desirable, the highest good. Whatsoever is perfect goodness is God. Whatsoever is truly goodness is in creation is a resemblance of God, end quote. And these definitions are all talked about in Psalm 145. All the way through the psalm, we see all these different manifestations of the goodness of God. And of course, we're just going to focus on goodness itself, but not all the manifestations of it. Now notice verse 7. Look there. And notice that we find out several things just from verse 7 where Verse 7 says, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. Now just stop there for a second, and I want to point out a few things. Well, first thing is this. We need to be uttering the abundant goodness of God. We need to be speaking forth or praising God for his abundant goodness. That's obvious from the first part of verse 7. Just as it is proper for a sports announcer to announce sports, so it's proper for God's creatures who receive all good things from their maker to announce his goodness. God by his goodness creates and sustains and saves undeserving hell-bent sinners and we need to praise him for his goodness. Secondly, notice the text says, you shall... Utter the abundant goodness of God and you shall do it, what? Eagerly. Eagerly. Eagerly tells us the passion that we utter the abundance goodness of God. 
You do it eagerly, not grudgingly. And oh, I got to praise God again. I got to go to church and sing songs. Bummer. That is not eager. You want to see something eager? Think of children, you know, the day before Christmas. Right before their birthday party, when everybody brings over all those presents and they're all stacked up and their eyes just are focused on those presents. They are very eager. And that is how God wants us to be when it comes to praising him for his goodness. He wants you to be like that child, eager, longing, looking forward to praise him for his goodness. Because he is so good. If a fireman saved your life by rescuing you from a burning building, wouldn't it be right and normal for you to thank him? But God has given you life in the first place, and if you are saved, he has given you eternal life, and he has rescued you from the fires of hell. And will you not abundantly praise him for his abundant goodness? The word in verse 7 translated utter when it says, and they shall eagerly utter, that is a great word. The word is often used of things that boil over or pour out. It's like when you, you know, are cooking something on the stove and you turn up the fire to high and then you get distracted because you're doing something else or talking. All of a sudden you hear this hissing sound and you look over and it's overflowing. It's just boiling over. That's what this is describing. Like a volcano that has just built up pressure and then spews forth. So God, in his goodness, builds up pressure inside the saints to where they want to just boil over, spew forth his abundant goodness. I think that is an indication that you know the Lord. If you look back at last week and last month and last year, you look at your life and say this, do you praise God for his goodness? Is that something that's part of your life? Are you characterized as a one who eagerly utters the abundant goodness of God? When I was in high school, I grew up in the mountains of Idaho. And what was interesting is I was growing up in Idaho is, is, you know, I came from the city. And so when we got up, everybody had to drill their own wells. We lived way far away from the city. We didn't have phones for the first two years we lived there. We lived way out in this cabin in the woods. And so the well driller would come up and he would sink a well, drill a well. And that's where everybody got their water. Well, my brother built a log cabin right on a creek. And uh, it was time for the well driller to come out and drill a well. And he thought, well, you know, since the creek was only 50, 75 feet away, you know, you'd go down a little ways and whammo, we'd have lots of water. All you can think of, you know, all that water must soak in, right? Wrong. 210 feet later, at $95 a foot, he had a small amount of smelly, rusty water. Now his neighbor, who just was next door, 100 feet, 200 feet away. They had the well driller come out and about the same distance away from the creek, drilled down 40, 50 feet, hit an artesian spring and it gushed forth. I mean, it would boil out the top of the well casing. They had to weld a cap on it to keep the property from being flooded. And when we look at that, it's a good illustration of some, some people who call themselves Christians. Some of you are like my brother's well. When it comes to giving forth praise to God. You look at your life and you see all the things you don't have. You look at your life and see what you aren't getting. You look at your life and all you see is everything negative. You don't see God in anything. All you know is you're miserable. You aren't happy and you aren't getting what you want. And you just spew forth a little bit of rusty smelly praise to God for his goodness when you have to. And it's usually against your will. Remember, it was God's goodness which allowed you to hear the gospel. It was God's goodness that enabled you to understand it. It was God's goodness that granted you repentance. It was God's goodness that opened your heart. It was God's goodness that saved you and regenerated you and is transforming you into the image of Christ. Here is something to praise God about. Remind yourself... Who the artesian well is of all blessing. It's God. 
And all of us know a couple people. And I imagine if right now we passed out papers and said, write down the names of two people you know who just are constantly praising God, we'd probably know, we'd probably, most of us write down the same names of those people. There are people in this church who just walk around and you just want to be around them because nothing gets them down. That God is so good that they don't care what happens, he's good. Bad happens to them, it's good. They lose their job, it's good. They go through trial, it's good. God's good. And man, you just want to be around those people. You know, if you're having a bummer, it's like, man, I go spend time with so-and-so because nothing gets them down. They're good all the time. Why? Because they know that God is good. And even though they may not feel good, they serve a God who is good and they just usher forth a continuous spewing of God's praise. And I think most of us need to learn from them I think most of us need to repent. And we need to learn how to praise God for his goodness. It's a shame when people come to church and they call themselves Christians. They go out in the workplace and they are just like the world, just grumbling and complaining and snarling. and And why does anybody ever want to become a Christian if they have to look at you and you're that way? I mean, what, what is there? Why? You know, well, I'm miserable and you're miserable and you're a Christian. I'm not. Okay. We're miserable. Remind yourself who God is. He is the God of all goodness. The sons of Korah reminds, uh, remind us of the goodness of God in Psalm 84:11. Listen to what they say. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did you hear that? That is a promise from the God who cannot lie. God promises here in his word that he will not withhold any good thing from you who walk uprightly. That's the criteria. You obey, he's going to bless you, and it bless you exceedingly. I love John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, and there's so many good pictures there. And one of the pictures is of, uh, of Pilgrim, a Christian, and they're going along. He's going along and with Hopeful, and they get to a place where the, the road is very steep, and just it's almost vertical climb. And it looks very tiring and very rocky and very hard, but it's the straight and narrow way, which sometimes is rocky and hard. But then there's another path which goes around in a very nice green meadow. And it looks like it from their vantage that it's going to go around and get them to the same place. And Hopeful is saying, you know, I don't think we should do this. And Christian, he just lost his brain and says oh it's going the same way let's go this way and so pretty soon they wander off the path a big storm comes a big flood comes they almost die they're exhausted it's cold they're all huddled up in the mud and the muck and sleeping there when giant despair comes he takes them throws them into the dungeon and every day he comes down and beats them and then he comes and he gives him a knife and gives him some poison. He says, kill yourself. I'll be back to beat you tomorrow. And then he doesn't feed him for a week. And they're in this dungeon and they're starving. And they can't, they can't get out. They're despairing. They're depressed. And after they're there about a week... And the giant just keeps beating them and beating them until they can't even stand. And they're weak because they don't have any food. He pictures all of this, and that's what despair does. But this is how they get out. They remember. They remember the promises of God. And Christian remembers that the scroll, which represents the word of God that he was given, actually has a key of promise stuck in the seal. And he pops it out, and it just happens to fit the dungeon lock. And he gets out. And that... It's such a great picture. Some people are in such funks and such depressions and such, you know, woe is me state. You know why? 
because they aren't remembering God and his goodness. And that's why the text says, if you look there, not only should you eagerly do it, not only should you utter it, but look at the word, the memory of your abundant goodness. You need to remember the goodness of God. You need to force yourself to remember that God is good to you. That you have never received what you deserve. And God has never received from you what he deserves. And even if you're sick, and even if you're suffering, God is still good. And you will never suffer to the place that you deserve if you're a believer. And so get out of the dungeon of despair, of depression, by remembering the memory of God's abundant goodness. That's another thing we learn from this text. David said this in Psalm 103, 1 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed nude like an eagle and the psalm goes on and on to speak about all the good things that god has done for us we need to think of ways to praise him when i was reading samuel rutherford a while back and he talked about praising god for temptation i just i just marveled in that i have never praised god for temptation but he says oh temptation is is a great blessing thinking what what He says, temptation gives us an opportunity to trust God. Temptation gives us an opportunity to use our spiritual armor. Temptation gives us an opportunity to stand up for God and to choose right over wrong. Temptation is the way that God transforms us and steals us in our convictions. He goes on and on to talk about how God's temptations are such a blessing. I thought, you know, they are. But I'm not blessed because I haven't noticed it yet. But now I do. We need to praise him when we're in sickness. You know, some of us have gotten the flu this year. To think that that little microscopic whatever it is could just lay you low. I mean, isn't that a blessing? Well, being laid low isn't a blessing. But the benefits of being laid low is, I mean, didn't you want Jesus to just come back? I mean, I had three people in my house up till three o'clock in the morning making trips to the bathroom. And I, I was ready for heaven and I didn't even have the flu. And, and, and the, flu, the flu is just a tiny thing. And it makes you realize how mortal you are. I mean, you think of all the days... When you get up and you feel fine and you go to work and you feel fine and you go play and you feel fine and you never thank God for his goodness. And I'm telling you, one little bout of the flu, man, you praise him, don't you? For about a week after that, man, you're praising God. Oh, Lord, it's so good to feel good. And then we forget. And we quit. This is not good. Every day you have that you feel good, it's... Something to praise God about. All the health you enjoy is something to praise God about. The skills that you have, the friends you have, the salvation you have, the family you have, the ministries you have, the things you have are all things that God gives you by his goodness. We're so surrounded with goodness that we forget that we need to spew forth abundant praise for God's abundant goodness. What happens is, is we get so used to it, we just don't think of it anymore. It's like my wife, you know, if I buy her flowers every week, it's not a big deal. So I kind of have to starve her out a little bit. <laughs> and then when I get her flowers, I am a hero. We need to remember that when God is giving us continual goodness, we need to praise him continually and not take it for granted. He's given us so many things. To think that Romans 8.28 says God causes all things to work together for 
for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. That means all every each thing in your life, it doesn't matter what it is, he's working it for your good, for your blessing, for his glory. I don't know how he does that, but he does it. So we are to praise God. We are to eagerly praise God. And we are to work hard at remembering what God has done for us. Psalm 111.4 says, God has made his wonders to be remembered. If you look through the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Joshua or the book of Exodus, and you're reading along, you will run into phrases like this. And when your son asks you, saying, you shall tell him. In other words, you shall pull out of your memory what you know, and you shall tell them of what? The goodness of God. You should do it. And when your children ask you, you shall what? Pull out of your memory and tell them about the goodness of God. It's all the way through those books. We see it all the way in the scriptures. I mean, you know, we celebrate communion here where twice Jesus says, do this what? In remembrance of me. Remembering what? His body, his blood shed for you on the cross. The goodness of God. You see, when we forget that God is good, then we get depressed. Then we fall into sin. Then we grumble. Then we complain like the Israelites did in the desert. And grumbling and complaining are an attack on the goodness of God. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, this is what he says. Listen to this. He lists all these sins that the Israelites fell in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then he says this in verses 10 and 11. Let us not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Did you see that there? God has killed people for your instruction. People have died to teach you things. So you wouldn't crave evil things. So you would learn of the goodness of God. Spurgeon wrote, it is, pro- it is not proper that the goodness of the living God should be buried in the cemetery of silence in the grave of ingratitude. End quote. That is exactly right. Some of us have buried our thanks to God so deep that we need a backhoe to dig it out. But that's not all we learn from Psalm 145. We still have verse 9. Look there. Verse 9, verse 7 speaks of the compelling nature and abundance of God's goodness. But look at verse 9. It speaks of the scope of God's goodness. It says at the beginning of the verse, the Lord is good To all. To all. Yeah, but what about those who hate him? He's good to them. What about those who really hate him? It's good to them. What about Satan worshipers? He's good to them. He's good to all. Every and each person. When you wake up in the morning and you're breathing, it's good. That you wake up is good. That you have food to eat is good. It all comes from God's hand. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 44 and 45 this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Then he says, four. He gives a reason for why we should pray for our enemies and and bless those who persecute us. Do you know what the reason is? Listen. Jesus says, you are to be a blessing and pray for your enemies and those who persecute you because there is an example. Here's the example. For he, that is God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It is the goodness of God which is the engine that drives our ability to love the unlovable. All we have to do is ask ourselves this. Okay, we've got somebody who's mean to us. We've got somebody who's persecuting us. We've got somebody who's, you know, whatever. Some bad person in our life. Is God showing goodness to them? You bet. 
every day they exist off the goodness of God. And Jesus' whole point is, listen, if God can sustain those people who are in constant rebellion against him and who are persecuting his children, if God can give them constant good things to keep them alive, to help them function in their rebellion against him, you can pray for them and be a blessing to them. Of course, the greatest acts of God's goodness are found in the person of Christ, aren't they? I mean, what greater thing is the death of Jesus Christ for unworthy, hell-bent sinners? In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus describes himself saying, I am the good shepherd. And why is he good? What does it say right after that? For the good shepherd, what? Lays his life down for the sheep. That is the expression, the great expression of his goodness. There are those here today who are truly saved, who have truly repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and you have changed and transformed lives to prove it. This is good. You are growing, you are becoming more Christ-like day by day, and hopefully your praise to God and worship to God and thankfulness to God is increasing as you are growing in Christ. But there are others of you who think you are saved, but you're not. And you either know you're not saved and won't admit it, or you're deceived into being saved, but you're not. You are a child of Satan, if ever ever there was one. You have never repented of your sins, turned from them to follow Christ. Oh, you call yourself a Christian. You may come to church regularly. You may want to escape hell. You may want to go to heaven. You may want a lot of things from God. But what you don't want is a total commitment to Jesus Christ. You don't want to turn from your sins and forsake all and follow Jesus And week after week, you're just building up condemnation because week after week, you're hearing the goodness of God. You're seeing the goodness of God. And yet in your heart, you will not repent. And whenever the scriptures speak of loving God's word, of growing in Christ, of serving and exercising your spiritual gifts, of loving God's people and longing for heaven, your conscience screams at you and convicts you and says, that's not you, that's not you. And it's not, if those things aren't true. And there are others of you who know you're not saved. And you may have a small arsenal of feeble excuses that you like to use to fend off people who try to get into your face and lead you to Christ. Those excuses you like to use because... After all, you've got things in your life you're just not willing to give up. You come because maybe the thought of going to hell scares you. Or you come because your parents make you. Or you come because your husband or wife comes. And maybe you come because you want to appease your guilty conscience. But you are not saved. You know you're not saved. You know you need to repent and you won't do it because you love your sin more than God. You reject the goodness of God for your own lusts. Well, you need to acknowledge your sin. You need to turn from your feeble excuses and you need to throw yourself upon the goodness of God and ask him to save you. And you know what's amazing is he will. Even though every day up to this moment, He has sustained you and given you the energy to rebel against him. He will save you if you repent and believe in his son. That people is amazing. You need to remember the death rate is still holding at 100%. You will die. You will stand before the Lord. And the Lord with eyes of flaming fire with perfect knowledge, will look right through you and all of your excuses. And do you think that your excuse of having good intentions will be enough to save you? Do you think that, oh, what about the natives in Africa will save you? 
Or there's so many translations and transliterations of the Bible. How do you know which version's the best? You think that's going to save you? Or how about, well, there's so many religions in the world. How do you know which one's the best one? Do you think Jesus is going to go, oh, I can see now that you were so sincere. That your heart was so pure in trying to seek for the truth. And those religions I hate that I will save you anyways, not on your life. At that point, both you and he will know with perfect clarity that you have set your heart against him because you were unwilling to submit to him and were unwilling to submit to the way, the truth, and the life. And you then will be cast into hell. That is why today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not later. My wife used to tell me, you know, she didn't want to become a Christian because she wanted to pick her own husband. So then she became a Christian and whammo, you know. She's been stuck with me ever since. But God has used me to teach her so many good things about long-suffering and all those things. And some of you out there may be thinking, well, you know, when I get older and after I indulge myself in the things of the world for a while, then I'll turn to Christ. No, your heart will rust shut and all heaven won't be able to break it loose. You'll be like a ship that is sitting at harbor for so long. The barnacles are caked on the hole and the rust is just corroded all the rigging and rotten all the ropes and it can't sail anymore. Its sailing days are over. It can't get to the destination. And so I would encourage any of you who have been rejecting the goodness of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ to give your heart to the Lord and not wait a single day longer. All of us need to examine our lives and all of us need to ask ourselves, am I praising God for his abundant goodness? Is my life characterized as a life of just joy because of all the things God has given me, even when things are not fun in my life? Psalm 145 tells us so many other things about the goodness of God. We'll look at them in weeks to come. But for now, I just want to just go through a couple of the scriptures and just kind of just give you just a quick summary of just some of the great things the Bible tells us about the goodness of God. There's 702 occurrences of the word good in the Old Testament. And all of those things that relate to something that truly is good all come from God in one degree or another. And so you can imagine trying to go through it is just it's too much. But here's some sampling of God's goodness. Now think about this. We looked at this in the story of Joseph. We'll just kind of go through. And remember when Joseph was in Egypt and his brothers were mean to him and we went through the providence of God and saw how God had, was working through him even though he suffered and was accused and prison and framed for rape and all of those things happened through all of his life. Do you remember what happened? At the very end, when his brothers came to him because his father died and they were afraid Joseph was going to take revenge and they say, well, dad said you have to forgive us. And Joseph said, you meant evil for me, against me, but God, what? Meant it for good. You need to remember that. Even when people are mean to you, even when people are mean to you for a long time, God uses that for the good of the elect. That's what Romans 8.28 tells us. He causes all things to work together for good. In the book of Exodus, turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. This is a great one here. This is just, this one here is, uh, this is a good one. You could preach a whole series on this. As I could. Okay. Exodus 33. While you're finding that text, let me remind you what's happening here. Moses has a very cozy relationship with God. He is the man that God speaks to, dialogues with. And Moses is so sick of the people of Israel, and they're grumbling and they're complaining, that he just wants to get them off his back. He doesn't want to be their leader, he just wants to be near God. And so he asks God, show me thy glory. He wants to see everything God is, that's what the glory of God is, everything God is in its infinitude and its intensity. He wants to see it all, just all at one time. Look at verse 18. Of Exodus 33. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And then God says this in verse 19. 
I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice that when Moses says, I want to see the glory of everything you are, God says, I'm going to show you all my goodness. But he says, you can't see my faith and live. And as a matter of fact, if I let you see all my goodness, <laughs> you would be destroyed. So I'll tell you what. I'll stuff you into the crack of the rock. And I will pass before you. And I will declare my glory, which is his goodness. And his goodness is his glory to you. Then after I get by... You can turn around and see my afterglow, which will light up your face for a couple months. Now, this is what happens. Look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is God's definition of his own glory. Verse 6, Exodus 34. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Sounds like Psalm 145. Shall utter. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, amen, amen, and gracious, amen, amen. How about, oh, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, amen, and abounding in loving kindness, amen, amen, and truth, amen, amen, and who keeps loving kindness for thousands, amen, amen, and who forgives iniquity, amen, amen, and transgression and sin, amen, amen, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, verse 8, and Moses made Haste to bow low towards the earth and worship. By no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. The goodness of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. What if God wasn't just? What kind of God would he be? He couldn't be holy. He couldn't be truthful. You couldn't trust him. He is perfectly just. He has to punish the wicked. But you're saying, but Jack, I'm wicked. I I sin. That is exactly the point. He has to punish wicked people, of which we all are, unless there is a volunteer, a perfect volunteer, who is willing to take your punishment that you deserve upon himself and suffer God's wrath in your place. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He comes to earth, God incarnate, lives a perfect life, willingly offers himself up as a sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and he receives your sin upon himself, suffers God's wrath upon his own frame, dies in your place as a substitute for you so that you can place your faith in him and receive his perfect righteousness. People, that is goodness. And that is why at the end of the day, at the end of the age, when you stand before God, you can't offer an excuse. God is good. He is beyond good. So now you hopefully see that God's compassion is good, His grace and loving kindness and truth and faithfulness and forgiveness is all good, but so is His justice, His vengeance and His wrath towards those who will not receive the free gift of His goodness. Turn to Psalm thirty-one, nineteen. Again, this is just a sampling. Psalm thirty-one, nineteen. David writes this, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. Just think of the storehouses of grain in Egypt during the time of Joseph. God just has stored up 
stored up goodness for those who fear him, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. There are two things, criteria here. One, you have to do what? The text says, who fear you, which is a synonym for walking in obedience. The other is who take refuge, which is a synonym for trusting in God. If you are walking in God's ways, if you are trusting in God, he has stored up abundant goodness for you. So there is a goodness by which God blesses all men generally, but there is a super abundant goodness for those who are his children, who walk before him in truth, who trust in him. Turn over to Psalm 34. Verse 8, there's a song after this, another song of David. David writes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints or holy ones. For to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Any good thing. You shall not be in lack of any good thing. That's what the Bible says, and God cannot lie. One of the great rebukes we had in seminary, we were in class and we prayed about a bunch of stuff and I think the the professor was a little sickened at our wimpy prayers. And so he began to ask us, well, let me ask you a question. How powerful is God? Oh, we knew that one. Now, God is all powerful. It's good. How wise is God? Oh, he's all wise. Hmm. What kind of resources does God have? He's got unlimited resources. Then why do you ask for such tiny things? You see, a lot of times when we pray, we just ask God, can I just have a grain of sugar? God's going, here. We need to ask God for big things, not just little things. Is he the God of all resources or not? Don't just ask him to save one person. Ask him to save a whole nation. Don't just ask him to, oh, can you do this? A little tiny little thing and fix my, you know, hangnail. Ask him for huge things. And ever since then, I try and ask him for giant things. Lord, just give us that corner lot. We could use that parking out there and we need that corner lot. I've been asking him for that corner lot. It's only six million. That's pocket change for God. And you think to yourself, well, you know, I mean, well, is that, is that good? I mean, is this like the health and wealth gospel? No. If you, James says, if you ask for things to indulge your own flesh, that's bad. If you ask for things to spend it on your own pleasures and become more worldly, that's bad. But if you ask things, good things, that you know are good, that will be a blessing for other and bring glory to God, that is good. So ask. Ask huge. So God can bless you. Huge. Accept whatever he gives you, but ask big because his Resources are unlimited. He is the God of goodness who wants to abundantly bless the saints. Psalm 119.68 says this. Speaking of God, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I love that verse. That is the summary of everything the Bible teaches about God and his goodness. God's good and everything he does is good. One of the most interesting and helpful verses in the goodness of God is Nahum chapter 1. See if you can find Nahum, I dare you. It's in the Minor Prophets, I think three books back from, four books back from, what is it? Yeah, five books back from Matthew. It's a little tiny book there, Nahum. While you're finding it, let me just give you a little background. We'll read this section, it's very fascinating. Nahum is a prophet who writes about Nineveh. Nineveh was, remember, the wicked people that oppressed Israel, a warring nation, the ones that Jonah went and preached to, you know, and he did the whale thing and 
thrown up on the beach. He came in, said three days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And there was this great judgment God was going to bring on Nineveh. And all the people repented, so God spared them. But then it only took about a generation and pretty soon all those people slipped back into their wickedness. And now judgment is coming. And this is probably one of the most terrifying sections of scripture on the wrath and judgment and vengeance of God found anywhere in the Bible. And as I read this, you see if you can find the goodness of God in here. Verse 2, Nahum 1 A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And a whirlwind and storm is his way. And the clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed the earth is upheaved by his presence in the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire on the rock are broken up by him the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him but with an overflowing flood he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness now isn't that incredible right here in the midst of this passage on the wrath of God is this great little verse that says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Even while he's going to judge these people, he gives them an out, he throws them a bone of grace and says, you can escape. You can escape. If you take refuge in me, you will escape. God is a God who wants to do good to his children. Jesus, speaking of prayer in Matthew seven eleven, says, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good to those who ask him? God wants you to ask him for good. Paul, speaking of God's goodness towards believers in Philippians 1, 6, says, He who began a what? Good work in you. We'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is so good that once he saves somebody, he's constantly working with you. He's working his good in you. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul speaks of the hope that we have in Christ and says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and a good hope, by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work. I love that. A Eternal comfort and a good hope. The hope of what? Of eternal life. Hebrews 9.11, speaking of Christ, the high priest, speaks of him as the high priest of good things to come. What good things? Things that the Bible can't even describe. They are so great and so good and so for you. The scriptures speak of them in terms like things which eye has not seen or ear heard or entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. Or the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in the saints. God has such incredible eternal goodness waiting for you. And that should motivate you and remind you that this earth is not your home. Don't try and find all goodness here. It's passing away. And so how should you live in light of God's goodness? Well, one, when you are suffering, you should thank God for all the times you haven't and should have. Praise Him for His goodness. When you see God's judgment executed, you should thank God that He is dealing justly with those who have rejected His goodness. For justice is good, and you should thank Him for not executing judgment upon you and extending you mercy. Third, you should remember that God is all goodness... He is not only good when things are good for us, he is always good even when we think things are bad for us. He is still good and as good as he'll ever be. And even though you can't see it, if you stop and you think and you meditate, you will realize he is good. 
Remember that the most painful things in life that God brings to us do us the most good. Think of how terrible it was that people crucified, crucified God incarnate, but yet look how much good came from that. And look at, think of how your trials and the sufferings of this present time are working in you glories far beyond all comparison. That they're building in you perseverance and proven character and hope. All of those things, the goodness of God and God is pouring his goodness into you. And we need to stop and think and remember that God is good and he's working in your life to do you good. And remember to obey God for he is extra good to those who fear him and walk uprightly. Abundant, abundant goodness is waiting. Six, remember to share the gospel of God's goodness because people need to hear about the goodness of God. They need to give God praise for he is good and they need to understand the gospel of God's goodness where God extends to them eternal life if they will repent and believe in his son Jesus Christ. And we have seen all the way through this psalm that we need to eagerly utter the memory of God's abundant goodness. Make sure that when you leave here, that is your heart's commitment because you have been saved to that very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this psalm. Oh, it's so loaded with great truth, great things that we need to apply to our life. Oh, Father, when we come to it, we realize we fall so far short. But Father, your grace, which you've given to us because you are good, is sufficient. Your mercy, which you have given to us, is sufficient. Your resources, which you have given to us, are sufficient. And so, Father, we have no excuse. Help us to excel still more in all that we do. And Father, may you be glorified. We praise you for your goodness. May it overflow from our lives at all times. Amen.